And we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 174. This time around, you are joined by the amazing force of nature, actor, producer, writer, and director, Ricky Lindholm. Her new dark comedy horror flick, The Wolf of Snow Hollow, is available in select theaters, drive-ins, VOD, and digital at time of release. Hear about her horror firsts, her work in The Last House on the Left, Knives Out, her experience alongside writer-director Jim Cummings in this twisted werewolf story, and so much more. Uh oh, we better get going. It's a full moon. This is Ricky Lindholm, and you're listening to another terrifying episode of The Boo Crew. This is scary. It's new. I never saw a body like that. There's going to be a lot of late nights and overtime because of the brutal murder that happened in town, and I didn't want to set up expectations that I can't keep. Our expectations of you are very low. Spans of the bites are gigantic, same as the distance of the paw prints. It's a wolf. Or maybe it's a werewolf. We have every reason to believe that this monster will show up again tonight. I won't ask you to pray with me because of the goddamn lawyers. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studios, an Emmy-nominated actor, writer, producer, and musician whose work is absolutely iconic. Early roles include the most acclaimed TV shows of our generation, titles like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Gilmore Girls, and The Muppets. In film, Clint Eastwood's four-time Oscar-winning Million Dollar Baby, Clint brought her back for the three-time Oscar-nominated Changeling with Angelina Jolie. She was mesmerizing in Dennis Iliad's The Last House on the Left as Sadie. She had her own musical comedy series, Garfunkel and Oates, in 2012, voice work in everything from Monsters vs. Aliens to Sponge Bob and Adventure Time brought us Comedy Central's wildly successful reality show set in 1902, another period for three amazing seasons and starred in one of the best movies of all time, Ryan Johnson's Oscar nominated and 45 time award winning whodunit Knives Out. Through her work and the fascinating trajectory her career has taken and everything she is a part of, there is a whimsy about it. Her choices stay with you, whether that's making you laugh, terrifying you, or making you think. Her latest project is the new dark comedy horror that everybody is talking about. From writer, director, and actor Jim Cummings, The Wolf of Snow Hollow, we are honored to welcome Ricky Lindholm. Oh my God, that is literally the best intro I've ever gotten. I'm like, did I do that? That sounded so impressive. I'm like, whoa. I think I need you to be my publicist. Hired. I've never, I've never like, I, yeah, that is the best one I've ever had. Wow. Well, thank <laughs> nice. you so I'm surprised. Like, usually when we're doing like dark uncle notes on stage, the comedian's like, uh, so these guys, I don't know. Who <laughs> <you're doing." laughs> right. No, we thought with seriously with the body of work that you've accomplished. I'm surprised that that is the best introduction yeah. you've ever had. Seriously. I mean, it is. That was just so <laughs> Thank you. Let's start off with uh, going into the horror genres. It's something we specialize in. What is your earliest memory of being impacted by horror as a viewer? Well, I remember just like hating them. Like I remember being like maybe six years old and they were playing like Freddy Krueger stuff at a 
slumber party and I was like in the I like left I just could I would cry like I did not like it it wasn't until I was older that I started liking horror movies I watched like The Shining or whatever all that kind of stuff once I got to college and then I'm like oh these things are pretty great but it was a slow burn were you part of the video store culture was that a big memory for you no because I grew up in a town of a thousand people and we didn't have a we didn't have a blockbuster and so we only had this convenience store that had like, you know, 40 movies or, you know, maybe 100 movies. I don't know. It was like on a little rotating thing. And those were the only things I had to choose from. And we didn't have cable until I was a sophomore in high school. So I just didn't have any any like media I had. It wasn't until I was like maybe 15 or 16 that I was like, oh, wow, there's so much cool stuff. And when I got to college, people were like, you haven't seen this. And I was like, I haven't seen anything. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, I could only watch the stuff from the convenience store or the stuff from the library, which was like bringing up baby or something like that. Like those were the only sort of options, like black and white movies. And so did you do that? And were there films that you through that process that you watched like over and over again? Because that's all that was there. I watched Rear Window over and over and over from the library. Wow. And then I watched Dirty Dancing a million times. And, you know, I watched Star Wars so many times, like stuff like that. Just like Karate Kid. Yeah, there's like a big swath of movies I still haven't seen. That's amazing. So I I wanted to talk about the experience of stepping into the horror genre in particular. One incredibly poignant time that you did that, obviously, was with Dennis Iliad's The Last House on the Left, a film where you really tested like a physicality involved in the genre and that was intense that was so much fun that was hard to watch though too your performance in particular my god it really was yeah it was it was a really intense thing i i wanted that part so badly like i remember um so i read the script and i was like oh my gosh i want this part so bad and it was like right before christmas break and i got to the casting office and I'd gotten the wrong time on my email. Like she was like, no, the auditions were hours ago. We're like done and we're leaving for break. And I was like, oh my God. And then I, show, I go, let me show. And I showed her the email and she goes, oh. And then she was like, I'll just bring you back for the callbacks. So, she, so I got to go to the straight to the callbacks because of a mit, like a clerical error. Cause I, she saw I was crushed. I was like, no, can you put the camera back up? Can we just, how do we? And she was like, okay, I'll just, I gotta, I gotta go on vacation. Like we'll, we'll bring you back. And I'd worked in something else with that same casting director. And then, um, yeah. And then at the actual audition, I think there was like five scenes and one of them was the really that crazy scene you're talking about. And my character didn't have a lot of lines and I was like, and they're like, okay, we're skipping that one. And I was like, no, I have to do that one. And they were like, what do you mean? I was like, I have to, or you can't see the character that I want to do. Cause the other scenes were just more like action, like her just like fronting and stuff, like being a badass. And I was like, that's the only, I was like, I have to show you this one or you're not going to see what I would do with the part. And they were like, okay. And then, then I did. And I got the role. I was like, well, okay. <laughs> and normally I wouldn't do that, but it was just like, I just like really wanted it. And it, there was like four scenes that were very similar. And then one that was like, oh, but this is the whole other side. And I was like, I, I, uh, I have to do that. Yeah. Growing up and not having watched all that many movies, but at the time of the casting for this movie, had you watched the original uh, Wes Craven version of Last House on the Left? Do you know, I didn't watch it before. I wouldn't have watched it by the time I went to that first audition, but over Christmas break, I watched it. So I'd watched it when I was home and I was like, whoa. And then I got ideas from watching that Sadie and, you know, could sort of build on it. But, you know, I think I got the other one the night before, so I hadn't had time to watch it. Now, as far as the physicality that was a part of that film, 
You know, you watch those scenes and you wonder, and we, we recently had Sarah Paxton on as well. We were asking her a similar oh, question. She's amazing. But you guys, and yeah, the way you yeah. guys squared off against each other too was just, uh, it's terrifying. And one of the scenes in particular where you guys were on the back of that truck and you're like yeah. touching them and you're pulling on their faces and all that stuff. How do you orchestrate that without hurting yourself or hurting the other actors, but still being able to display that frenetic intensity? Well, Dennis Iliadis was just, he was just a really good leader and he had us come early and do rehearsals. And so we got to sort of like, like act out all the scenes, like in a blank room before we were doing it and just sort of mess around and try things. And he's like, oh, maybe try that. And we did like acting exercises and stuff. And then we all would go out and have dinner together every night. And so we got closer. So it got to, so it wasn't like this, like actor in their trailer, actor in their trailer. And you're like, Oh, can I touch your face? It was like, we were finding stuff and we were all very comfortable with each other. Right. So it, there was like a trust there. And Dennis was just like, he just had, like he was, he had our back. Like it wasn't like nothing weird was going to happen. Like he was just a calm sort of, he just knew what he wanted and he could guide us. And it, it was just like a lot of trust. As far as horror adjacent, we are massive fans. We're going to jump to Knives Out. So you were a part of just this insane cast and all of you amazing performers in your own right. And the opportunity to see all of you go head to head was magic. Isn't that amazing? uh, I can't believe I was in that. (laughs) That's so great. How did that magic creep into your performance and just being on set and what that did just to everybody to being a part of this thing and the, the wonderful script that you were acting with and everything. The coolest part of that movie was, so we filmed in Boston in this like, you know, vintage house, like this antique store, like everything was, I don't know. I don't know if antiques the word, but like this old, old house that was very well maintained, but it was, you know, meticulously watched by the owners and the owners were like, you can't have trailers on our lawn because it'll ruin it. And they were right. It was like on this hill, like it would have, destroyed it and they were like you gotta have they have to be somewhere else so the trailers were kind of far away and we, they also wouldn't they didn't want actors just like walking around in these rooms with all these like invaluable antiques and stuff so we were all just like in this basement like it was like a nice basement it wasn't a basement it, but it was we were in this basement just all day together in the same room so none of us had like we're like alone <laughs> wow. we all just, like, hung out between scenes we all just hung out in this room and everybody it would be like daniel craig and sitting next to Edie, you know, sitting next to Tony Collette or whatever. We were just all chilling together. So it did make it fun. And we would all chat and whatever between scenes. And it did like bond us and make it fun. But it was so crazy that we didn't. Yeah, because, you know, because every everyone in that movie was a big star. So they all these huge trailers that they never went in. (laughs) (laughs) So I recently watched the deleted scenes. So I got to see a lot of scenes of you that didn't make it into the film. This whole like side story about Walt and what happened with money and being in trouble. Like there were intense scenes that you were in. I know. Why like why did those not make it? Do you know why? I mean, I feel like they would have Well, I think it was a story thing. Like it's like when a film's like long, it's like what can you lift and still have it make sense? And you can't lift Jamie Lee Curtis's storyline. You can't like do you know what I mean? It was like it was gonna be mine. Do you know what I mean? Like it just was. It's a bummer. Like I wish they were in there, but you know, it does make sense though, because you don't watch the film and go, something's really off. Where if it was like Chris Evans storyline, he would have been like, something's really off. <laughs> I think it should have been in there. I, I wouldn't have minded the extra screen time. I agree. <laughs> I, I concur. But what can you do? Like, it, you know, true. like Ryan is just one of those. He's just an artist and he, you have to do what's best for the film. 
it's just whatever he thought was best for the film. Like you just have to do it. Like it's, it's brutal, but you have to. How was it being in the eat shit scene? Like, did you, I would have laughed the whole time. (laughs) That is like my favorite scene of the movie. And I don't know how you kept a straight face. What was it like? You know, it's funny. Nobody broke during that. Wow. No, I don't think so. Not that I remember. But like in person, it's weird. In person, it wasn't as funny. Like in person, like he's like telling you to eat shit. And he's, you know, he's also a really good actor. So he's telling you to your face to eat shit. So you're not laughing. You're like, oh, you eat shit. You know what I mean? Like it's like offensive. I didn't know it was going to even play that funny. There was an auction recently and we actually acquired Chris Evans cable knit white sweater. Oh, the sweater. Yeah, oh my yeah. God. The sweater in a big frame sitting in the other <laughs> 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 Yeah, I know we're big fans of that movie. Is there any hope, do you think, to see Donna again in the world of Ryan Johnson? I don't know about Donna, but I'd love to see Ricky somewhere in there. I'd go back. I'd, hey, I'd be back. Yeah. The Boo Crew will be right back. This is the scene of the crime. A crime of passion filmed in a way you have never seen before. And as no one else would dare attempt. But the screen's master of suspense, the producer-director who shocked the world with Psycho. Those are just a few of my neighbors. First, I watched them just to kill time, but then I couldn't take my eyes off them, just as you won't be able to. And you won't be able to take your eyes off the glowing beauty of Grace Kelly, who shares the heart and curiosity of James Stewart in this story of a romance shadowed by the terror of a horrifying secret. Let's get into The Wolf of Snow Hollow and your involvement. So, so much genius lies not only in the writing, but in the subtleties of bringing that writing to life with a perfect tone of performance and the marriage of the two. What did you find compelling about the piece in the script? Well, it's funny. I'd seen Thunder Road, which is Jim King's first movie, and I loved it. And then this was one of those weird last minute things where I'd worked with the producer of the movie and, and, and something else. And the part was originally another actress was playing the part. And then right before filming started, something happened. She had a scheduling. Call. I don't know what happened, but they called me, you know, it was like on a Friday or something. And I left, I think Monday for Utah to start filming. Whoa. Yeah. They were like, he's like, do you know Jim Cummings? I was like, I just watched his movie. And they're like, okay, we're sending you a script right now. Read it. You're going to talk to him. And, and we talked and, yeah, I was like, let's do this. He's like, let's do this. And so I just like flew out to Utah, I think maybe two or three days later. That's incredible. Yeah, we're yeah I had to dye my hair in between. I had to like get brunette and then and then go out. Yeah. What is it that you love about the way Jim works? It's weird because I think my favorite thing is something that you can't see on screen, but it's I think it's all of our favorite thing is how quickly he goes from different modes. It's fascinating to watch. Sure. Because he can go from like, changing the script to like directing a light to whatever. And then he'll just write, like he doesn't even need a second before he's acting. Like he can, I'm not joking. He can be like, okay, so you're going to come in, you're going to put the camera here, you're going to do this and action tears. Like not even, he doesn't need, he doesn't like, I like need a minute, you know, I'm like, I need like, I need like silence. I need to like get in the moment. He can just 
transition like like seamlessly in, into all the different roles. It's fascinating to watch. I've been a showrunner before and I had a lot of roles and every single thing I was like, I remember asking everyone, I was like, I need a favor on the first season of another period. I was like, no one can ask me a question for one whole minute before I do a take. And they were like, oh, and I was like, I need one whole minute. And then I switched it to 30 seconds. And I was like, but no, I need 30 full seconds. And Jim needs no seconds. Unbelievable. Yeah. Is there something tangible about working with a filmmaker who's, you know, maybe on their first or their second feature? Is there an energy there that is unlocked versus working with a more seasoned director? Is there an energy there that you almost wish you could bottle up? And is there something about being on a set of a project like that that elevates everything? It really does be. I Well, the interesting thing when you're doing something like with like no time on a shoestring budget, like everyone who's there really wants to be there. Hmm. There's no one there for like the paycheck. No one's there for like to make big money, not really wanting to do it. Everyone's there because they really want to be there. And so you feel that and everyone's like, working together, like trying to make it happen, like trying to get the shot before the sun goes down or whatever. It feels like a team effort more than say like a big budget movie where the director's kind of in charge and you're kind of waiting until they're like, now you stand here. Like you just, we didn't have trailers we were going to like, we didn't have trailers on this movie. One time I had all these lines to learn and I went into a PA's car. I was like, I don't, they were like new lines. And I was like, I gotta, I, cause there's nowhere to be alone. And I was like, I'm going to go in this car by myself and learn these lines before the scene. <laughs> now, in terms of the piece as a whole, what does Officer Julia represent to you? And what are the benchmarks of her character that were important to you to get across or maybe even exaggerate to elevate it all? I don't know. That's such a good question. And I have no idea how to answer it. What do I represent? What is it important to get through your cross? And what are the benchmarks? I think she represents the, like, the female perspective and also just anyone who is right and ignored anyone who's like overlooked by like someone with a huge personality sort of taking all the air out of the room and their opinions not validated. And then that person eventually slowly before you even know it, they're your boss. Kind of a nice journey. You know, it's kind of good when like the right person gets the job instead of just the protagonist. Cause Jim's character did not deserve to be running things. Right. I did, That's you know? exactly, exactly. It was nice <laughs> that, that happened. It was like a nice trip. There was a lot to relate with in this storyline on many, many levels. Why do you think social commentary works so well and effectively through the lens of horror? It's weird. I don't know that it, I feel like it works through the lens of everything. I'm like, it works through the lens of comedy, through drama, through mystery, through horror. So I don't know that it, do you think it particularly works well through horror? I don't know. I've never thought about it as like a particular thing. What do you think? I mean, traditionally, when you look at films like some of the great zombie movies like Dawn of the Dead, a reflection on consumerism and all this stuff, it's, a, it's a, definitely a prevalent thing in horror. I find that through the lens of horror, at least for myself, when you combine those messages with intense viscera and a delivery that also evokes a physical reaction, I feel it seeps in, at least to my brain, a little bit more when I'm sitting on the couch and I'm wincing or I'm feeling bad about myself or I'm feeling scared. I tend to question why I'm feeling those things. And horror is just one of those genres that really makes me look inward and, and sense, be, just become hyper aware of everything, you know? Wow, I've never thought of it that way, but I see what you mean. <laughs> Interesting. I never have. I, I don't know that a horror movie has made me look inward. I don't know if it's bad, but I can't think of one. Maybe Shining. Yeah. Where I was like, I hate writer's block. Like, that was, 
<laughs> I was like, I, I gotta like get my writer's block under control. Like he was like the extreme version of what writer's block causes, but I was like, mm, I relate to that frustration. Yeah, I found this film to be a great meditation on toxic masculinity, addiction, and family through the werewolf subgenre. It was a very cool approach. Let's go on to the cinematography and the way that this thing was presented. I mean, absolutely beautiful. Yeah, Natalie Kingston, she did such an amazing job. They were, yeah, they really, all, the whole camera department and Jim, they really worked hard on finding the perfect look. They really, yeah, they really made it amazing. Like, I was very impressed. Yeah, it looks stunning. It's huge. It's massive looking. What was your take on the look of the werewolf? That was really unique and interesting, too. I thought it was cool, especially, well, it's so interesting because... I have a little bit of different perspective because I was like behind the scenes. I'm like, oh, cool. But like, you see like the actor running around, like learning the moves of a werewolf. Like, so you see like all the, the working behind the machine. So it's just kind of like when you're in the movie, you don't get lost in the magic as much when you watch it. <laughs> you're just like, oh, you know, Natalie lit that and Dan held the stick yeah. for that. Like, you know what I mean? Where it's like, I thought it looked amazing, but it's weird where you don't like, you have sort of have memories of shooting things when you're watching it more than getting lost at least that's me i don't it's it's hard to get lost when i like when you're looking at yourself working with the uh late robert forster in one of his last roles what was your favorite uh, memory of him on set and what did you learn from working with him oh my gosh i loved him everybody loved him he was like the the storyteller guy he was and he was also super excited to be there he didn't have to do any roles he's already a legend and he was like excited to be in the middle of winter in utah just telling stories and like he was very like the guy who held court and told funny stories but my favorite memory of him it's like an odd one actually we it's when we're filming the first scene the first crime scene and we're walking down this snowy hill to walk to the crime scene and you know robert's older and he's got this whole masculine thing but he we have to walk down this sort of this icy hill and he looked at me and he's like can i hold on to you and he said it in this like sweet and i was like yeah and then he just would like lean on me when we went down the hill and then i started like helping him up the hill and, and, and he just was like it was there was something so tender about it and it was like it wasn't mask it wasn't he was just like it was like a vulnerable moment and i was like yeah man yeah and then he just like leaned on me all day and i i felt like bonded to him oh isn't awesome. that sweet like yeah, there's something really there's something very nice. sweet about that coming from such a macho legend you know <laughs> So I noticed there were some long takes in the film. What was that process like filming the long takes? I mean, just know your lines. <laughs> <laughs> know where you're standing, know where you're moving, know your lines. And Jim like lays it all out. Like he'll just, he'll, you know, he's sort of frantic Jim where he's like, and then it goes over here and it swoops and then you duck and you walk over here and you say this and like, he'll just, and then we will be like action. And we're like, ah, okay. You know, but you gotta, you gotta show up ready to go. What a fun challenge. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. So we'll wrap it up here. What other stuff do you have in the works right now? I know it's a very weird time in the world right now, especially in the world of entertainment, but what are you able to be doing right now? Well, right now I have, I'm uh, filming, well, recording the second season of Duncanville, which is an animated show I'm on for Fox, but I'm, uh, and I'm also, I'm, I'm writing an animated movie right now too, which is cool. Oh, that's awesome. Really, really fun. Are you allowed to say anything about the tone or anything about it? Or are you keeping it under wraps for now? It's for kids, but it's like a female empowerment. Ooh, I have so, four kids. I'm going to love that. Yeah, yeah. We're always looking for fun stuff. Yeah. Sort of like Frozen or like one of those, like it's for it's for chicks that's so fun for little, little girls does it have a musical element as well oh yeah, yeah. very fun oh that's gonna be nice. great okay nice. we'll stay posted for that well ricky thank you so much again for spending some yes. time with us today we really appreciate it yeah, thanks 
for having me. I'm going to go try to get some moral messages from, you know, from horror movies. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 174. Special thanks to our guest, Ricky Lindholm. Follow her at Ricky Lindholm on Instagram and Twitter. And at time of release, check out The Wolf of Snow Hollow and select theaters, drive-ins, VOD, and digital. Production tracks for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.